When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to discuss a quite topical subject matter, Ukrainian nationalism and the Tsarist and Soviet state. And for this podcast, we are pleased and deed honored to have with us Professor Jean-Paul Himka, who is Professor Emeritus at the University of Alberta, David Stone of the Naval War College, and Alexander Watson of the University of London, Goldsmiths. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey. Gentlemen, first a matter of clarification. When I was in graduate school, there was a lot of, uh, in the 80s and early 90s, there was a lot of discussion about the topology of different sorts of uh, nationalist movements. Where in that uh, frame would you fit Ukrainian nationalism? My guess is that it's more akin to the nationalist movements in the Baltics and uh, some of the uh, other Central European uh, movements like the Czech or more, more like a Slovak rather than, say, Polish or Magyar nationalism. Is that correct or am I off base? Who, who would you like to answer that question? Any, any one of the three of you, actually. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. It's it's one of those submerged nations within an empire that, uh, you know, starts out early in the 19th century collecting folklore, uh, trying to construct a history, uh, and, uh, you know, eventually developing more of a sense of uh, spatiality. Where does this nation live? What is this language? Compiling dictionaries, grammars, uh, very much uh, reminiscent of, uh, say, the Slovaks or Slovenians or uh, uh, Latvians or Lithuanians. Now, Professor Himka, uh, what and when uh, were the initial czarist uh, reaction to the emergence of a proto-Ukrainian nationalist feeling uh, was it something that concerned, say, Benkendorf and Dubel to the third section in the reign of Nicholas I, or is that actually was so submerged that it didn't even actually enter their reign of, um, of sight? No, the first, first impressions of the Ukrainian movement go back to the 1840s, when the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius was uh, uh, meeting in Kiev, in, in the capital of, of what's today Ukraine. You know, uh, the historian uh, Mikola Kostomarov, uh, the poet Taras Shomchenko, and several others uh, had a very radical program of social liberation, democratization, um, republicanism, and, um, and, uh, and Ukrainian uh, National Awakening Federation. So they were, they were dispersed. Uh, and some of the members uh, suffered some kind of repression, 
So famously, the Ukrainian national bard Taras Shevchenko was sent into exile, uh, less for less less for being a Ukrainian activist and more for writing poetry that insulted the Tsar and his family. Uh, but that would be the first first encounter of the uh, Russian state with something that was very reminiscent of uh, that kind of modern nationalism that was growing up in the uh, 19th century. I mean, there were Ukrainian uh, revivals started much earlier, but it was considered fairly harmless. It was, in fact, many great Russian uh, uh, thinkers were very interested in the uh, Ukrainian uh, um, uh, revival that, that started in Kharkiv and then moved to Kiev uh, because it seemed to get to that real essence of what it meant to be a Ruski. So uh, uh, that would be the first one, the, the 1840s. And as Professor Ivan Lysak-Rudnitsky used to make note of, they got relatively mild uh, repressions. If this had occurred after the 1848 revolution, it wasn't, it was the early 1840s. If this had occurred after the 1848 revolution, then they would have had much more severe uh, repressions, such as Dostoevsky, who belonged to that uh, circle. Um, you know, he he had he, he was much more severely punished than any Ukrainian activist. The beginnings of a real confrontation between the Russian state and the Ukrainian movement started in the 1860s, and and I would say it reached its height in the mid 1870s with bans on the uh, publication, or at least severe restrictions on republication of, uh, of uh, periodicals in Ukrainian, and the dismissal of uh, Mikhailo Dramanov, the major Ukrainian political thinker from Kiev University, and forced into exile. Now, how, um, uh, I should say, what was the motivation for the suppression, I believe it was in the mid to late 1830s, of the Unate Church? Oh, that was entirely connected with the Pol with the Polish situation. Uh, the Poles had, in the 1830s, uh, launched an insurrection, as they did again later in the 1870s, and in the aftermath, I mean 1860s, in the aftermath of both of those Polish insurrections, the uh, state was determined to suppress the Uniate Church, which was very much under the influence of uh, of Poland and had it was it was a hybrid church, especially in the Russian Empire, um, with um, the uh, Polish um, uh, gentry uh, to a great extent Latinizing and Polonizing that church. So it was also a place where the uh, government felt that this could be a uh, seedbed of sedition, a uh, 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 part of a Polish intrigue against the Russians. So that, I would say, was the, was the one of the major, at least a major factor in the suppression of the Uniate Church. I mean, I mean, obviously every church likes to likes to be dominant. So the Russian Orthodox Church did not particularly like the Uniates, which they considered total traitors to Orthodoxy. Now, how important to the emergence of Ukrainian nationalist feeling in the Russian Empire was the allegedly more advanced uh, national movement or ethos in Austrian Galicia? I don't think it was 
particularly important for what happened in Russia. Uh, most of the most of the influence originally came from uh, the Ukrainian movement in Russia on Galicia. So it was those uh, early romantic Ukrainian writers in uh, Kharkiv and Kiev who inspired the first Ukrainian poets, the so-called Ruthenian triad uh, of uh, of the 1830s. Uh, and uh, Drahmanov, who I mentioned already, was a major, major influence on the development of uh, the Ukrainian movement in Galicia. Once the Ukrainian movement really got underway in Galicia, which would I would say be around 1900, I mean, it was way, way un, under, un, it was underway earlier than that, but by 1900, uh, Galicia became a place of refuge for Ukrainian activists in the Russian Empire who were facing persecution there, but could act act in a very Ukrainian way, an anti-Russian way, within the Austrian uh, uh, Austrian section of uh, the Habsburg monarchy. Galicia was a constitutional uh, province, like all like all of uh, like all of uh, Austrian uh, part of uh, the Habsburg monarchy. Freedom of the press, you could write in Ukrainian, you could teach in Ukrainian. So there was a kind of emigration. So some very famous people came over, the revolutionary Maxim Zaliznyak and uh, uh, the uh, 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 Dmitro Donsov, who started as a Marxist and ended up as a fascist, came over. Rushevsky got a Rushevsky, the major Ukrainian historian, got a job in Lviv, in Galicia. Uh, and then there was a debate about language because many of the people in, uh, in, in what we'll call Russian Ukraine didn't like all the Polonisms of the Galician language. So, um, they, they, there was a kind of debate about, about the language and, and that, of course, formulated or helped formulate the modern Ukrainian literary language. But I would say that at this time, it is before um say before the world war 1 for certain for certain um galicia did not have a great impact on um on russia now was there a consistent policy of russification in ukraine under alexander the 3rd similar to what was seen in russian poland and in uh, the Baltic um, provinces of Livland, Estland, and Kurland. I don't think Alexander III was the great offender. It was the 1870s, was, mid-1870s was the actual height of, uh, of repression against the Ukrainian movement. Then, you know, driven into exile were many of the more revolutionary Ukrainians, revolutionary in the sense of, of, of wanting, you know, democratic change in, 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 in Russia. Uh, in the 18, and, and, the, and it was in the 1870s that the publication in Ukraine was ever more restricted. But studies have shown that, in fact, uh, slow trickles, but in the 1880s, when uh, Alexander was in power, was a time when many more uh, Ukrainian publications passed the censor. And I don't know of any major arrests or repressions under Alexander III. Was there a policy by the regime in Petersburg of playing off the Poles, especially the landed class, against the Ukrainian-speaking peasantry? Quite the opposite. 
they used the Ukrainian peasantry against the Poles. So they, because the Ukrainians were considered Russians, a type of Russian, and they were uh, arguing against the uh, Polish gentry on the right bank that they uh, had no real uh, uh, right to this land because most of the peasants were Russian, well, that is Ukrainian. And um, and so the, the, the Poles were the danger and the uh, Ukrainians were sometimes considered part of the Polish intrigue, but at other times, as, 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 as in case you're asking about, it was the other way around. It was the uh, peasantry that was enlisted uh, as the um, kind of uh, standard bearers of Russian nationality. And then the church, of course, in, in the right bank area uh, promoted uh, uh, promoted some kind of you know, Ukrainian ethnographic uh, customs or folkloric customs in the clergy in the right bank. Uh, also, uh, uh, organized um, um, the, the Union of the Russian, well, you know, various kind of um, educational uh, movements in the villages. So, and they, they with a strong anti-Polish and anti-Jewish edge. And, and Charles, if I could step in here for just a second. Yeah, so this is Dave Stone here. And so, again, I just quick wanted to mention that um, I, all my remarks today are just personal. They're, they're not in any official capacity, even though I, I do work for the Navy. Um, I mean, just to pull out uh, some points from what Professor Himke was saying, I mean, I think one of the, the key things to keep in mind, and um, this is implicit in everything he's been saying, is that to the official mind in St. Petersburg and then subsequently in Moscow, the real threat was always Polish nationalism. Um, that was what was the real concern. That is what had been the, sort of the, the spark for a, a series of uprisings that Professor Hinka mentioned. And so uh, to a large degree, not entirely, but to a large degree, Ukraine was sort of seen through the lens of the Polish problem, Polish Western and Catholic influence kind of corrupting what would have been sort of good Russian peasants who had fallen under this alien influence. And so I think that helps to understand some of the ways in which um, St. Petersburg and then Moscow deal with Ukraine. Let me just add a little to, uh, a point to that. It's very interesting that when, in Stalin in 1932, in his correspondence with Kaganovich, uh, is also primarily worried about the Polish influence on Ukraine. And isn't thirties? And isn't that one of the reasons for um, the Stalipin bill to extend the Zemstvos to uh, Western? Uh, part of Ukraine and the Russian Empire precisely to uh, promote uh, what they felt were as a pro-Russian um, section of uh, that area vis-a-vis -vis the Poles. Didn't the Zemstvos come in later in right bank Ukraine? No, I, I think there was there was actually that was one of the reasons for Stalipin's fall from power was the, the fact that the uh, upper house of uh, the uh, I forgot the name of it. The upper house uh, rejected the initial um, bill to extend the Zemstvos to uh, the western portions of the Russian Empire. Uh, no, I, 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 I'll pass on that one. I'm looking in my Google here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Professor Stone, how did the uh, regime treat Ukrainian 
I don't know, nationalism or national feeling or ethos during Russia's great war? Well, I think this picks up on um, one of the things that we were just talking about in terms of how the, the difference in, in the way that the regime in Russia regarded Poland and regarded Ukraine. Um, so when World War I begins, there's this competition for Polish allegiance. Um, uh, sort of proclaim the, the Russian government um, through uh, Grand Duke Dmitry, Dmitry Nikolai Nikolaevich, commander in chief, offers Poland a great deal of autonomy in a sense, trying to bid for Polish loyalty because the Poles are seen for historic and cultural reasons as a, as a they've been a distinct nation for longer. Um, they've been more of a political problem. And so there's this bidding process that takes place. And that just doesn't happen in Ukraine. It will happen later um, when the regime starts to fall apart in 1917. But at least at the beginning of the war, um, the Russians are seeing the real question as how the Poles and how Polish feeling is going to change. In a sense, kind of Ukrainian loyalty is I think take it for granted um, that the, the Ukrainians will fight loyally for the Russian Empire, and they do for certainly through 1917. If I, if I can come in for a bit as well, because I, I agree every, with everything that's been said so far, especially about for, for the Russian imperial regime, the Poles are both the major problem and the group to be kind of bought off, and this this offer to Poles of an autonomous. Uh, united Polish land under the scepter of the Tsar is um, is actually a key moment in the First World War because it kind of starts a bidding war within the greater conflict for Polish loyalty. The catch is, though, is is that it's it's quite territorially defined. I mean, from from the evidence that we've got, what is in mind is uh, taking over the whole of Galicia. But this new kind of Congress Poland under the Tsar is only going to be what Western Galicia. So really kind of land that today is is southern Poland. Eastern Galicia, which is today Western Ukraine, is is the intention seems to have been to absorb it into the Russian Empire. And one of the things that um, you get very early in the uh, in, in the campaign is um, a refusal actually to uh, at least explicitly uh, acknowledge any difference between Ukrainian speakers in Western Ukraine and Eastern Galicia and Russians. The the Russian army goes into Galicia, goes into this this part of the Habsburg Empire, um, talking about issuing pamphlets which talk about this land as being populated by um, Poles, by Jews and by Russians. And it's presented this this part of the campaign. The first part of the campaign is in part presented as a as, as a campaign actually to liberate Russians. There's there's some quite strong parallels between the language of today's war and the language of the war in 1914. And when the when the Russian Imperial Army does get into uh, urban centers where there are, I mean, the urban centers, Lviv, Shemish, they're 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 dominated by 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 Polish elites and and the populations tend to be more Polish at that time and more Jewish actually rather than Ukrainian. But there are roundups of Ukrainian nationalists because of course the existence of these people who are saying Ukraine is an independent nation, Ukraine is a separate nation from Russia, are a serious problem for the imperial Russian propaganda narrative that all of this land 
in in eastern Ukraine, in eastern Galicia should be should be Russian, that there are Russians needing to be needing to be freed and that and that Russia should be a great Russia to the Carpathians. So we do get persecutions, we do get roundups, we get the closure very quickly of Ukrainian language schools, for example, um, demands for uh, Ukrainian speaking teachers to be retrained in Russian, bans on Ukrainian publications. Uh, so although there's no there's no explicit willingness to recognize Ukrainians as Ukrainians, there's 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 certainly implicitly a, a recognition that these are a problem for a Russian nationalist uh, narrative of, of Eastern Galicia, Western Ukraine as being part of Russia. Now, how did the provisional government view and act towards Ukrainian nationalism? Was it considerably more, for lack of a better um, word, liberal in its uh, policies than its predecessor? And this could be for anyone. Well, if I could, uh, um, let me say just a little bit on the, the particularly the military angle. And again, this is Dave Stone of the three people talking. Um, so the provisional government makes concessions, um, particularly on the military question, of allowing the creation of Ukrainian national units. And this is an issue that will recur over the course of the 20th century of having specific units inside a greater Russian or Soviet military that are in some sense Ukrainian. Now, uh, to some degree, this is that the provisional government doesn't have a great deal of power. And so um, if people want to do things in Ukraine, the provisional government in St. Petersburg can't necessarily do very much about it. Um, and so at least on paper, uh, there's the creation of a whole series of Ukrainian national units um, on the front, um, the southern part of the, the, the eastern front. Um, and it, it's kind of an open question that the sources are, are a little muddy here on exactly to what degree this takes place. But the principles are fairly clear. And the idea is that um, Ukrainians will form units that are more or less exclusively Ukrainian, where the language of command will be Ukrainian, and at least in theory, the officers will be Ukrainian, either um, identifying as Ukrainian or from the region of Ukraine or in some sense identifying with Ukraine. Um, and the problem is that in the chaos of 1917, that's very difficult to make happen. Um, and it's actually hard to find self-identified Ukrainian nationalists in the Russian officer corps. Those are sort of difficult things to reconcile. Um, but at least there's the principle. Um, and the provisional government is at least willing to accept that, um, perhaps not with a great deal of enthusiasm. Um, and again, the, the key thing about the provisional government that I would say to keep in mind for a whole series of questions in this period of time is they don't have a lot of power to exert their will on the periphery of the Russian Empire. Um, and so in a sense, they're kind of accepting uh, developments that take place on the periphery without being able necessarily to dictate very much. That's how I would characterize the overall pattern. And what was the initial Soviet policy towards Ukraine, and how did it change with the rise of Stalin to near-complete power by 1929? And anyone can answer this. Well, maybe before we go on to that as well, we should just, just pause for a moment and think about uh, what happens after the fall of the provisional government, where where um, the German and Austro-Hungarian armies together take over much of what today is Ukraine. Um, and of course, it's it's actually that um, that Central Powers Initiative, Central Europeans in Ukraine that that fuels Ukrainian nationalism in this period as well. 
and just to echo Alex's uh, – Charles, if I could just step in to echo Alex's point, um, I think there's a great deal that goes on in the Russian Civil War, which it actually should be called – um, it's a little strange to talk about a Russian Civil War on the territory of Ukraine. Um, but the Russian Civil War has an enormous effect on what happens afterwards, um, and the, the – the, the, Key thing for kind of the, the general listenership here to keep in mind is the complete chaos of war and politics in Ukraine from the period from 1917 through 1920. Um, there's this bewildering succession of governments and outside occupations. Um, Kiev itself changes hands something like a dozen times in the course of the Civil War. And so any sense of what's going to happen after the war is going to be conditioned by both the occupation by the central powers, the emergence of Ukrainian nationalist governments of various stripes, whether more leftist or more authoritarian, um, peasant anarchism, uh, and then again, the, the imposition of communist rule. There's just so much going on here that it's hard to come up with a consistent narrative, but it is important to bear in mind just how much um, instability there is over the course of that relatively short period of time. And following on from Dave's point as well, you know, 1918 is, is, is key in terms of thinking about, um, you know, the the existence of the first modern Ukrainian state as well. I mean, we, we talk about the Russian Civil War, but then, of course, we've also got the wars between Poland and, and the Soviet Union within that, opposed between Poland, wars between Poland and, and the West Ukrainian Republic. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, I, I guess another theme of this, as well as the rise of Ukrainian statehood, is is the push and pull of 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 of, of what we might think of as the West, or as, as, as certainly Central Europe, and and on the other side, Russia. Um, so as, as as Dave says, yeah, kind of putting this into into boxes of Russian history or, or, or Polish history or even Ukrainian history is actually quite difficult to do. There's so many links. In some ways, these are huge transnational and international events. Uh, is it is it not the case though that fairly early on in 1918, by uh, I suppose April or May, the, um, the the government in Kiev, the Rada, the Ukrainian national government, is in essence pushed aside by the Germans and the Austrians, and never actually makes a consistent comeback in terms of achieving power. I think that's fairly fairly clear. Yes. Uh, in, as as was said, you know, it came changed hands many times in this chaos. And I think when you're going towards the early Soviet period, it was a question of how within the within the Bolsheviks about how you evaluate the strength of Ukrainian nationalism. So people like Pyatokov, for example, were saying, let's just make it Soviet Russia and divide it into industrial zones, you know, Kravodik Republic, this or that, Donbass separate and divide it uh, by economic kind of zones. Uh, but Lenin uh, evaluated the Ukrainian movement and its aspirations much higher, and he was the one who insisted that there should be a Ukrainian republic. And that only when the dust settles in the early 1920s that, that I would say you can make any sense out of what happens. And the other thing that I think is worth pointing out here is that when um, Lenin sets up a Ukrainian republic, um, and it's been a, a fairly clear part of the historiography for almost 30 years now, that um, Lenin and then after him Stalin were weirdly deferential to the principle of nationalism. Now, they killed lots of nationalists, and we should never forget that. Um, but there was this sense that Ukraine should have – there should be a Ukrainian Soviet republic, um, and there sh that, that the, to that degree nationality deserved respect um, without necessarily respecting nationalists. 
Um, and one of the things that makes this possible, I think, is the fact that Western Ukraine, Galicia, ends up as a result of the outcome of the, the Soviet-Polish War in Polish hands. Um, so the region where Ukrainian national feeling had traditionally been strongest um, is not inside the borders of the Soviet Union. Um, and the Soviets put a capital at Kharkiv, which is an industrial city and so has more kind of uh, Russians who move there. Um, and so the, the Soviets are careful to maintain Soviet communist control even while offering this fig leaf of the existence of of a separate Ukrainian republic inside the Soviet Union. Uh, was the famine in Ukraine, and this is a hot-button issue for the last 30 years or so, um, deliberate, or was it merely a side effect of collectivization on the whole, as a whole? Oh, so before we get to the famine, which I, I'm sure there's, there's going to be a lot to say, there's one or two things I would want to point out about the 1920s uh, before we get to the famine of the 1930s. Um, and that is to underline this strange phenomenon inside uh, the Soviet Union of, on the one hand, maintaining absolute centralized control in the hands of the party, and yet on the other hand, having these elements of deference to national feeling, um, which is per quite peculiar, I think, to the Soviet style of doing things. Um, it, it's been passed on to, to other states that have been inspired by the Soviet Union, but the Soviets have this particular flavor. Um, and back to the military question in particular, just as an example of this, um, the Soviet government sets up national units inside the Soviet army during the 1920s. Um, and they actually try to make it real. So there's a number of Ukrainian divisions that are to be manned by Ukrainians, officered by Ukrainians, where the language of command is Ukrainian, um, as this effort to use nationalism as a way to bring people to sort of Marxism as an ideology. Uh, and Ukraine's not unique in this. There are national units scattered all across the Soviet Union. Um, and so again, this goes to the point of up until the 1930s, there is this Soviet experiment in trying to use nationalism and cultivate national institutions as a way of kind of convincing people to give their allegiance to a Marxist-Leninist state. What you were saying there, Dave, about about the uh, about the nationalism side of things is, uh, and you know, the Bolsheviks' respect for nationalism is really, really interesting. I was I was reading Terry Martin's stuff. I mean, I, I use his stuff a lot for when I'm when I'm teaching, and um, to me as well, that's there seems to be an element of again east-west push on this you know there was an element of kind of showcasing soviet ukraine as better than the fate of the ukrainians in uh, in poland at least during the 1920s obviously that changes with collectivization and the and the starvation of the early 30s but again there seems to be there seems to be constantly on one hand this 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 internal focus of, of what's going on within the empire itself and ukrainians place or not place within within the Soviet Union. But there's always seems to be a look over to the West as well at um at uh uh yeah, particularly what the Poles are doing. And I guess it all comes back for for the Soviets and before them for the Imperial Russians to what the Poles are doing and, and they're the big competitor. It seems to be there seems to be some some yeah, a struggle there for uh, between the two. And in terms of the thirties, uh, what is um would would say is the consensus about the famine? I don't know if there's a consensus. I, I would say the consensus in uh, mainstream Ukrainian studies is that it was a genocide unleashed against the Ukrainian people. But uh, I think that's a rather politicized understanding of the events. Uh, to my mind, it's, it's very clear that before Ukraine gets singled out too much, the fail, you know, the failures and of the planning of the collectivization 
the absolutely kind of walking on a tightrope which gets cut so that every harvest is worse than the previous one. I, th- I, th- I think that the conditions for famine are set up by uh, by the implementation of collectivization. On the other hand, uh, U- Ukraine after Kazakhstan has the most per capita death rate. And um, unlike many other places, there are numerous, numerous accounts and, and the testimonies and memoirs that uh, not only was did they seek for hidden grain in the peasants, but they actually took the food out of their kitchens, uh, which, which is uh, many Ukrainians uh, argue, scholars argue that this this indicates the genocidal nature of the famine. But I'll let others uh, give their views on it as well. Well, and again, I, I, Professor Himka is, is, is would be the expert here. The the question I see, and again, looking at it from Moscow's point of view, um, was was this a war on the peasantry? And Ukraine has lots of peasants, um, or was this a war on Ukraine specifically? Um, and from my point of view, looking at it from Moscow, what I see and what I've looked at is a more sense of broad economic crisis that the Soviets have pursued a whole series of policies, um, a disastrous agricultural policy and a very deliberate policy of squeezing the countryside to pay for industrialization um, that has a very clear effect of disaster in the countryside. And the degree to which that's specifically intended and directed at Ukraine is something that I think responsible scholars can still argue about and disagree about. I also think it's important to realize that that as this was going on, as the famine was going on, there were also those intense repressions uh, that had begun in 1930 against the Ukrainian movement. You know, the mass arrests of, uh, of the sort of uni- the, the fake union of, for the liberation of Ukraine, the uh, uh, suppression of the Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, autocephalous Orthodox Church. Uh, they, they, they began arresting Ukrainian cultural figures in mass, and that was going on uh, at the same time as the famine. So, uh, and, and you know from the correspondence with Kaganovich that Stalin is worried about Ukraine, again, from the Polish influence on Ukraine. So there is a, it is a famine that is, I believe, caused by collectivization, but many of the effects are displaced on Ukraine. Uh, and if you look at the Ethiopian famine of the, of the 70s, uh, it displaced its famine on those regions of Ethiopia which had separatist aspirations. So this is not something unusual. Uh, just like uh, Mugabe, when he was in charge of Zimbabwe, also used food as a as a weapon uh, to uh, aid was withheld from his opponents and freely given to his uh, supporters. Uh, what was Moscow's policy towards the Ukraine, uh, even though it was mostly occupied by the Germans until uh, late 1943, early 1944? Um, v- so before we jump ahead to World War II, I, I, I would like to spend a little bit of time on the topic that, that uh, Professor Hinka just raised, which is specifically repression, uh, because there are the, the great purges at the end of the 1930s that I think are worth also bringing into the story here before we get to World War II. Um, and what I would note is there, there's a, a sort of similar dynamic here in which clearly um, Ukraine comes in for directed repression. The question is, is that directed repression aimed at Ukraine similar to and in what ways is it similar to repression that's directed lots of other places in the Soviet Union? Um, 
We've talked uh, at several points now about how in the 1920s the Soviet regime tried to sort of provide lip service to the idea of national autonomy and creating national institutions. And the late 30s are a time when that really goes away. Um, those national units that I talked about, those are dissolved um, in the late 1930s. Um, the Ukrainian leadership is decimated by the purges in the late 1930s, along with lots of other um, local leadership in around the periphery of the Soviet Union. Um, and since uh, my focus is the military, just an, an illustrative example of this, um, many of the, the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with Mikhail Tukhachevsky, um, who is a sort of military theorist, um, leader in the Soviet military um, through the 1920s and 1930s. He's purged in 1937, and in the group of eight, so Tukhachevsky and seven others who were purged alongside him, the other seven besides Tukhachevsky are all non-Russian. They are some degree an ethnic minority of some sort or another. And so I think what we can see in this is that the purges are doing a lot of things for Stalin. But among other things, one of the things they're doing is getting rid of um, non-Russians in positions of authority. Um, in not all of them, certainly there are those in Stalin's inner circle who are not Russian and are kept in. But there's a lot of non-Russian figures of authority, including Ukrainians, who die in the, in the late 1930s and change the way in which the Soviet um, – that, that process changes the way in which the Soviet Union handles national autonomy and, and these sorts of national institutions. I guess if any of, if any of your listeners uh, want a, what I thought was a really strong argument that um, Ukrainian famine was, was a genocide, then Tim Snyder's Bloodlands, which also deals with these nationalist purges, with the, the nationalist persecutions of the, of, of the later 30s. Um, but I, I, th I thought that put forward a really good argument to show that uh, that uh, that that famine did become a genocide of um, of Ukrainians, and I, I guess one of the, one of the issues that scholars think about as well is where does that uh, where does that attack on on nationalism actually begin? Of course, it's mainly associated with uh, the Great Purges of the late 30s, but there is an argument to, to to roll that back to the early 30s and say that in some ways Ukrainians are the first victims of that as well. There's no doubt that the Ukrainians were being persecuted from 1930 on, and that 1937 was like picking up the last scraps. Uh, most most Ukrainian activists were dead or exiled uh, uh, before the Great Terror, and in 1937, many of those who were in custody were just shot. So in, in Ukraine, it's not 1937, it's 1930, it's 1933, and a series of show trials after that. Now, during World War II, would it be correct to say that uh, Ukraine as a whole, uh, you can uh, divide up into three parts its um, history for the war? The first part being from 30, September 39 to June 41, when uh, Galicia is uh, absorbed from Poland and uh, added to uh, Soviet Ukraine. The second part, of course, being from June 41 to late sometime in 43-44, when uh, the Russian, sorry, the Soviets reconquer Ukraine as a whole from the Germans. And of course, the uh, post uh, that period from 44 to 45, when there's a complete uh, um, annexation, or I should say, complete turn of Soviet power to Ukraine as a whole, as well as there is being addition of uh, uh, part of Czechoslovakia pre-1938 Czechoslovakia, which is added to Ukraine. And this is be, this is directed to anyone. Yeah, that sounds like a fair periodization. 
and what was what in terms of uh, the first period would it be correct to say that uh, Moscow's policy was basically a portion part of ethnic cleansing, meaning deporting in mass Jews and Poles to Siberia, or of course, in the case of Katyn, eliminating them entirely, depending upon who they were in terms of their social background, uh, functions, etc. And that was the consistent policy um, up to June 1941. Right. I mean, that was. I think that the you have to make a distinction between the uh, deportation of Poles and the deportation of Jews. Uh, since Western Ukraine had been under Polish rule and since the police, the railroad employees, all the government officials were Polish, um, uh, there was a, they wanted to dismantle that entire Polish establishment and they um, um, targeted the Poles in a, in a, in a very, with a very broad sweep as they sent them to the east. Uh, while in the case, uh, while in the case of the Jews, um, I would say there were it wasn't a, a, a desire to get rid of the of the Jews from Western Ukraine, but rather that uh, a lot of Jews were f- were fleeing from the German zone, and all of them were deported um, to the to the east to the Gulag, and um, political enemies of the. Uh, of the uh, regime among the Jews were uh, arrested and uh, and later shot. And that would be primarily like Zionists and Sambundists and Zionists, Bundists and dissident communists, left communists. Well, I think it's worth just emphasizing just how brutal that Soviet occupation is. I, I mean, even compared to to the Nazis, the Soviets kill around a murder around half a million people during their occupation of of Poland between 39 and 41, which is somewhere between three and four times what the Nazis do in their occupied part of Poland over the same period. It's it's really, really, really lethal. And the the deportations come to about three quarters of a million people as well. Uh, Just want to emphasize that. And uh, otherwise, I agree with with what Professor Himka says about a about particularly the, the the desire to both deconstruct the Polish state in these occupied areas, but also to go further. I mean, violence just just as in the Soviet Union a decade earlier, violence is used in this occupied area as a means of reorganizing and physically changing society, uh, with a view to to cementing Soviet Soviet control over it. Uh, David Stone. Uh, no, I, I would agree with everything my colleagues have said. I'm nothing at this point. And um, what was the policy post June 1941? Was it there was any signs of, um, for lack of a better expression, uh, liberalization that um, could be seen in other parts of uh, Soviet society in terms of uh, allowing some room for the Orthodox clergy, et cetera, et cetera? Was any of that apparent in regime policy towards? Ukraine, albeit most of Ukraine until sometime in '43, was occupied by the Germans. Yeah, yes, there was certainly on the propaganda level um, efforts to win back, as it were, the Ukrainians. So uh, a number of historical figures uh, 
were rehabilitated. So again, Mikhail Dramanov, whom I mentioned, in the 1920s, he was considered progressive. In the 1930s, he was considered a bourgeois nationalist of the worst sort. And then all of a sudden, during World War II, he was back as a good guy. A number of other figures from Ukrainian history were dragged out. And of course, uh, there was the um, the introduction of uh, the war medal, the Order of Bohdan Khmelnytsky, the Cossack leader of the mid-17th century. So there, there were efforts, but they were primarily propaganda. Once once they came back into power, they they uh, tried to return to the uh, system as it existed uh, uh, before the German invasion. Th- that's my reading of it. And the other, I, I would add as well that um, most of Ukraine is, is occupied by the end of 41. Um, and so liberalization to, to the degree there is liberalization inside the sort of the rest of the Soviet Union can't really be applied in Ukraine because it's under German occupation. Um, and so there's not a lot that can be done. Um, after the war is over, or as the war is ending and as Soviet troops roll back through Ukraine, then we can start to see different things happening. Um, but again, while Ukraine's under occupation, there's a limit to what Moscow can do. One of the interesting comparative things that um, has been clear in the literature for a long time, we're starting to get a better sense of, is that when you look at partisan movements in occupied territories, the real heartland for partisan resistance to the Germans is in Belarus. Uh, And there's a whole series of um, complex reasons for that. Part of it is simply terrain. Belarus has more swamps and forests, and so it's easier for partisans to operate. Um, Belarusian national feeling is is not as developed as Ukrainian, and so there's uh, perhaps a little more deference to Moscow. Um, And then there's a really complicated question of Ukrainian nationalism during the war. And again, Professor Himke has has written some really interesting things on this, and particularly the place of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists in this. Um, And they're thinking about what the interests of Ukraine deserve. And so I, I just want to raise the topic and let Professor Himka talk a little bit more about it. Um, but if I'm a Ukrainian nationalist in occupied Ukraine, I have to think very carefully about who looks like is, it's going to, is going to win this war. What is the best way to try to promote Ukrainian interests, both with regard to the great powers and also with regard to local non-Ukrainian populations? And that leads to some very complex and some really violent politics, both during German occupation and then especially um, when the Soviets start approaching uh, the reoccupation of Ukraine. So, again, I want to make sure that we have time to, to spend a little time talking about that. And uh, that leads to the question, uh, how strong post-1945 was the Bandera partisan movement in Ukraine? Yeah, maybe I should say a little bit about, about the movement. Uh, it certainly began to orient itself on Germany already as soon as Hitler came to power. I mean, actually, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists uh, had contacts with the Germans from its inception. But when Hitler came to power in 1933, uh, the enemy of both Russia and Poland, Hitler was. So uh, a lot of enthusiasm for national socialism. And I think it had a very baleful influence on the development of the Ukrainian nationalists at that at that juncture. And uh, they, when the Germans did come and they were able, they were the only Ukrainian political movement, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, was the only Ukrainian political movement which was able to survive underground uh, uh, during the period of Soviet rule of 1939 to 41. So when the Germans came, they came out, the nationalists came out from underground and they helped the Germans for quite a while. 
even when they formally broke with the Germans, uh, the nationalists were involved in the auxiliary police formations and the civil administrations and were heavily involved in the Holocaust. And then in 1943, they launched a um, ethnic cleansing against the Poles that killed tens of thousands of Poles, mainly civilians. So you have a nasty little record. And uh, when the Soviets came back, they decided that they would uh, uh, re, uh, uh, redirect their efforts directly against the Soviets and, and launch an anti-Soviet insurgency, which they did, and which was pretty successful for a long time. I would say it lasted until the late 1940s. Uh, how many people were involved? Well, this is a hard one to answer because some scholars put it at between 25,000 and 40,000, others between like 150,000 and 200,000 of the members of the insurgency. And I think what's involved here is how you count. Uh, do you count only those guys who are hunkering down in the bunkers uh, and coming out at night to terrorize uh, this local Soviet administration? Uh, and probably those are a much fewer number but sympathizers in the population, couriers, yeah, and quite a few of those. The Soviets ended up with their usual kind of mm, massive technique of uh, deporting hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians uh, so that the, the uh, partisans, the nationalist partisans, wouldn't have a, a base of operations. Partisan families were all exiled. Uh, it was a very brutal counter uh insurgencies well i mean this whole thing is brutal and, and just to underline that to, to underline that point i mean this is um this historiography can get very politicized um but i think professor Himke is absolutely right that stalin was a bad guy but that doesn't mean that everyone who was opposed to stalin was a good guy there's a great deal of bloodshed in this region um after during and after world war ii um and in terms of comparative counterinsurgency, obviously counterinsurgency is a subject that's been on the minds of lots of military thinkers. Um, the Soviets make no effort to win hearts and minds. From the Soviet point of view, um, brutality is the key. And, and part of this is because they think anyone who's a class enemy needs to be deported. So anyone from a social elite needs to be deported. And so they do mass deportations. Um, and so the Soviets wage, in the end, a successful counterinsurgency. Western Ukraine is brought under control at huge cost. Um, lives lost, deportations, the, the amount of bloodshed is enormous. Um, and there's a great deal of bloodshed that the, the, the Soviets lose a lot of blood. One of the things that um, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists can do effectively um, is assassinate local officials. It's hard to stand up to Soviet military forces. Um, the, the actual killing here is being done by Soviet internal troops, not the Soviet army itself, but Soviet internal troops. Um, Ukrainian nationals have trouble, trouble standing up to them in an even fight, um, but they can assassinate lo local collaborators, and they do in the thousands, um, to try to undermine Soviet rule. And so it is a long and bitter struggle to make this happen. The other point I would make, and this is directly relevant to what's happening today, is that um, Putin's regime in Moscow never misses an opportunity to link contemporary Ukrainian nationalism and the contemporary Ukrainian state to the crimes committed by Ukrainian nationalists during the war, and particularly the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, that those two things in the, the Russian official mind are inextricably tied together. 
that what took place 70 years ago and was carried out by a particular organization is being used to tar the Ukrainian government today. Um, and so I think that historical legacy is absolutely vital to getting a sense of the way that Putin is thinking about Ukraine and what the Russian government is thinking about Ukraine. It, it does, uh, let me just say one thing. It doesn't help that the Ukrainian governments of uh, Presidents Yushchenko and Poroshenko decided to make them state heroes. Uh, you know, to me, that seemed like an open invitation for that kind of propaganda. Well, isn't that, though, similar to what happened uh, in the Baltic states, where I think the term was Forest Brotherhood, the uh, partisan movement uh, post-1944-45, uh, also after 1991 became uh, recognized as uh, heroes of Latvian, Estonian, Lithuanian independence? Yes, it's kind of a politics of memory in which the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of moment. Now, the partisan movement, was that basically most strongly located in what is today Western Ukraine and did not have much resonance in, say, Central or Eastern Ukraine? Is that correct? Uh, after 19, uh, after the Soviet reconquest, uh, yeah, it was limited to Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine and Eastern Poland. Uh how, if at all, did de-Stalinization affect Soviet policy towards Ukraine? Uh, was the thaw a significant um, variable in terms of the emergence of uh, a Ukrainian intelligentsia, for lack of better expression? I'll say a few. Th can I say? Th I'll say a few things about that. First of all, there was an amnesty under under when, when Stalin, after Stalin died. And a lot of the people who had been exiled uh, 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 during the war or after the war came back home. Uh, not people who were accused of uh, war crimes, you know, who were convicted of war crimes. In other words, you know, mass murder or things like that. But other people who had been in uh, the Ukrainian insurgent army, uh, certainly their families could come back. Uh, some of them were could come could get out of their exile, but not actually enter Ukraine. But uh, generally speaking, a whole bunch of people came back, and that create and including the suppressed Uniate Church, the Greek Catholic Church in Western Ukraine. Those people came back and functioned as an underground church until 1989. So. Uh, by that amnesty, they just brought back that same population, which uh, they had um, uh, removed for security reasons. And, uh, and, and of course, they brought with them not only their ordinary nationalist views, but the experience of being in the Gulag. And their anti-Sovietism was very on a very high range. And then... Uh, Yes, in the 60s, uh, there were a number of cons uh, important uh, kind of books published by Ukrainian authors that would have never have seen the light uh, of day under Stalinism. And uh, this, uh, this kind of thaw lasted in Ukraine until 1971. Uh, that's when a lot of the people who we now consider dissidents were arrested because they, they had been legal, legally uh, operating. But uh, all of a sudden, uh, that came to an end. So, yeah, Stalin, the, the death of Stalin was, was uh, uh, a very positive development for Ukrainian national consciousness. 
So in effect, um, the post-Khrushchev or post-Thaw policy um, did not change immediately in 1964 when Brezhnev comes to power, but uh, actually only changes subsequently in the early to mid-70s. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's, that's, I mean, of course, there are rest, or, you know, it is the Soviet Union still, but basically, yes, I would say that's not until, uh, because the the head of the party, Petro Shalast, the head of the party in Ukraine, uh, had a number of kind of soft spots in his heart for Ukrainian culture. Now, would it be correct to say that um, uh, this Proto-Ukrainian nationalist feeling, or actually just nationalist feeling, um, was centered in Western Ukraine, and that it had much less resonance in, say, Eastern Ukraine. Uh, Kiev became a big center of uh, of, uh, of Ukrainian rebirth. I mean, there was all kinds of activists there, painters and poets and uh, writers. Uh, so I wouldn't say it was just in Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine was nationalist because so many people there had that experience. You know, they were they they were born in the Gulag or something like that, or their uh, parents were there or they were there. But uh, in uh, in in Kiev, it was a kind of a very strong intellectual movement. You think of Ivan Zuba's book of 1967. Uh, internationalism or russification where he uh, dissects uh, Soviet nationality policy through the prism of of Lenin's uh, theory of the national question. Uh, it's had a lot of really Alahorska, the, the the brilliant painter boy, she's she's really very good. Uh, this is where the Svetlichnys were first uh, involved. This is where there was a uh, cave was where there was an underground uh, underground periodicals, Sami's dot. So uh, it's not just Western Ukraine, no. Understood. And what could we say was Gorbachev's policy towards Ukraine during his uh, brief period in power? Well, it wasn't quite as positive as Yeltsin's going to be a little later. But, uh, you know, he uh, uh, kind of forced the uh, uh, perestroika and glasnost in Ukraine against the against the wishes of the old the, the party leader who replaced Shalist, Volodymyr Stervetsky. Uh, he, he he forced uh, he he also released people from prison. So in 1988 or 1989, you would go to the streets of Lviv and you would find all the dissidents. You know Ivan Kandeba, who is a like a Melnikite nationalist and uh, Mikhail Osadze, a very a brilliant uh, writer and editor. Um, they were they were back on the streets. Chernobyl was out. I remember in 1989 under, under Gorbachev, Chernobyl would walk out with all his followers and into Lviv and he would stop at various places and hold speeches. Um, so I think you know, Gorbachev wanted... Ukraine to have cultural rights, but was not interested in the breakup of the Soviet Union. Understood. And Yeltsin, I think in the case of Yeltsin, he, that was a possibility which he was quite uh, open to. Is that is that more or less the gist of it? No, you know, the thing is that it's not about Yeltsin's openness to Ukrainian culture. 
what was going on, if you remember, in the, in the late period of Gorbachev, was a contest, conflict, between uh, Yeltsin and Gorbachev. And Gorbachev stood on an all-union platform. He was uh, head of the Soviet Union. And Yeltsin uh, began, he became the president of Russia and expanded the, the uh, kind of powers of the republic. He, Yeltsin, needed allies in the republics. And that is why uh, he pushed for sovereignty declarations among the republics so that the Soviet side of the power struggle would be weakened. And he found uh, good allies in the Ukrainian communists. And uh, very soon, by 19, you know, by the, in 1990 or so, the, the communists in Ukraine were, were uh, beginning to move towards uh, the idea of independence. They passed the Declaration of Sovereignty in uh, July of uh, 1990. And that was under Yeltsin's influence. Gentlemen, last word, Professor Himka. A last word? Uh, all this history is, of course, much more complicated than we can ever do in a short podcast. Um, and it's because Ukraine is in a very exposed position. I was just writing something yesterday, and I was looking at all the different regimes that had been installed on Ukrainian territory since the Mongol invasion, and you know, just numerous. And you compare that to something like Russia, which is very rarely occupied in any place. So, of course, of course, in this kind of battleground between the, the Turks in the Black Sea and uh, Poles in the West and the Russians in the East, uh, German aspirations, lots of things uh, occur that they have like too much history. So I just want to say that we were sketching things here today, but it's, of course, much, much, much deeper than, than we're able at this time to, to express. Alex Watson. I don't think I can do any better than that at all. I think that the only thing that I'd maybe add is that, of course, what's going on now is 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 Ukrainian history. But one of the constants of modern Ukrainian history is that it has been wrapped up with broader geographical, ideological sweeps, conflicts, contests. And, and we've talked about I mean, of course, we've talked about Ukraine through this podcast, but uh, there's been a lot of other countries that have, have, have come into that. And I think we're, we're, we're seeing Ukraine as, you know, heart of Europe, heart of, 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 of global politics at the moment. This is this is this is a huge moment. And um, yeah, one of the things that's, that that's, I hope will come out of this podcast is Ukraines and Ukrainians interlinkings with 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 the geographical area and the big ideas and ideologies all around in the modern period. Uh, I'm afraid that David Stone had to leave us early for another commitment. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to uh, thank you both very much, as well as David Stone, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Book. You've been listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you very much, both gentlemen, or as they say in Polish, Junkwia. Proszę bardzo. Proszę bardzo. Thank you again. Bye. Bye. Thanks.